So if you were to ask me why I'm here today, the first answer would be Jesus. The second answer would be because of the influence of, of Chuck and Paula Stroop, my parents. The third answer would be Shane Armstrong, who was my youth minister uh, my whole growing up life. And then it would get a little longer of a list, but it would go something like this. It would be names like Elsie Oser, Lynn Gaw, Mary Ellen Lucas, Tracy Crumpleman, Eileen Keyes, Jerry Doherty, Steph Doherty, um, Jerry Fisher, sorry, Steph Doherty, uh, Roy Lucas Jr., Anthony Rowe, uh, and the list goes on and on. And that, that, that last list there is a list of people who spent time with me. It's a list of people who taught my Sunday school. It's a list of people who led my small groups. It's a list of people who willingly, perhaps to their own demise, spent time with a growing and maturing Ben Stroop in a church circumstance and setting because they knew how important it was for them to say, I'm willing to invest in the next generation. And it's been... 19 years, it's been 25 years, it's been a long time since I sat under the tutelage of Lynn Gaw. It's been uh, probably 20 years since Lynn Gaw went to be with the Lord. I, I know for a fact that it's been um, 15 years since Elsie Oser went to be with the Lord, but I know that I can tell you without a doubt that they left an indelible mark on me as a follower of Jesus. I can tell you about Eileen Keys and Tracy Crumpleman, and I can tell you about how many times they kicked me out of class um, because I was, uh, this will surprise you, a smart aleck um, and wasn't always the most well-behaved child. I blame society, but um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, I can tell you about the mark that they left on me about and the things that they taught. I can tell you about the passion that they put in me for the Bible. I can tell you memory verses that they forced me to learn, and in my obstinance I didn't want to learn, but they forced me to learn that I still know to this day because they invested in me as a kid, and as hard as I fought them, they fought me back because they knew how important it was to invest in a kid like me. And I can tell you about guys like Roy Lucas Jr. and Anthony Rowe. And I can tell you about their time that they spent with a growing adolescent kid like me who was awkward and unsure, but who every Sunday night they were willing to listen to his problems and talk to him about what it meant to follow Jesus. And it's because of my parents and it's because of Shane and it's because of that list of people that I stand here today. And I don't tell you that to pat myself on the back. I tell you that because I'm telling you right now, there is a long list of kids who need their own list. Because it's not just me. I have a friend named Greg who works at one of the largest churches in our denomination in Savannah, Georgia, who as the Connections pastor. I tell you that because a couple classes behind me was a kid named Kyle who works on one of the wildest college campuses in campus ministry at Eastern Kentucky University trying to reach out to a generation of kids because he was impacted by those same group of kids. I tell you that because I have a friend named David who works in Young Life in South Carolina reaching out to multiple high school campuses all over the, all over 
over the state of South Carolina because of those people and how they reached out to him. I tell you that because I have friends like Christina and Rebecca who went to Bible college and married pastors and are now involved actively in church ministry. I tell you that because I have friends who are in ministry because of the life that they spent at Lakeside Christian Church. I tell you that because there are kids who grew up with me who are now involved at Lakeside and other churches around the country in ministry just as volunteers who, who live normal lives and have normal jobs because of the foundation they built, because the, the senior minister of the church stood and said, we will invest in the next generation and make sure that they grow to love Jesus. I don't tell you that to say I grew up in a great church. I tell you that to say we are going to make sure that our kids are growing up in a church that invests in them. And here's the thing, if, if you don't have kids, you don't get to tune me out today. If you don't have kids, you have to listen harder. Last week when we started this next series, Justin kicked it off and he talked about how important it is for us to reach the next generation. We talk all the time here about how within a 20-mile radius of this building right here, there are 50,000 people who don't know Jesus, and almost two-thirds of that 50,000 are kids. And here's what's really scary about that. Last week, Justin scared with you what we call the 513 window, and it's a principle from the Barna Group. And, and I have heard the 513 window for the last 10, uh, maybe 15 years since it came out. And, and it's one of those things that I have heard it so many times that it kind of just washes over me, and I don't even notice it anymore. But we were together in the car the other day, and Whitney said, that, that stat Justin, Justin shared, have you heard that before? And I was like, oh yeah, 513 window, I hear it all the time. And she said, how have you never told me that? So what do you mean? So that's the scariest thing I've ever heard. And I realized that I've heard it so much and I've read it so many times that it kind of is like old hat to me. But I forget how important it is. So I want to share it with you again today. And here's what you need to know. Is that if a person doesn't follow Jesus by age 14, there is a 6% chance that they end up following Jesus. If a person isn't following Jesus by age 14, there is a 6% chance they end up a Christian. Now see, as a senior minister, I'm actually uh, kind of in two camps here. One of, my, one of my camps is I think we do church wrong in some ways, and we try to do it right here. And so we're trying to raise the 6% number and trying to change the way things happen. But the other side of that is to understand how important it is that we're investing in the 513 window. And we're saying, listen, it is absolutely vital that we are making sure that we are reaching the next generation because we cannot, we cannot lose the next generation. And I am well aware, as the older edge of this group that everyone calls millennials, I am well aware of like the stereotype that we get, and everyone says, well, it's just millennials, man, that's how they are. And I take offense to every variation of it. But I'm here to tell you that you can either write us off, or you can be a part of the group that says we will not let this generation be the lost generation. And you can be a part of the group that is going to include this church that says we will not let them lose. And you can be a part of the group that says this is up to us. You see, there's a problem that's happening in our culture today, and you say, I know, 
it's the media, it's the news, it's the internet, or whatever you think it is. But here's, here's the real problem. The problem is what's called the rise of the nuns. And I don't mean the Catholic nuns, like with the hat and, say, the rosary. Um, this is N-O-N-E, the rise of the nuns. It's a shift that's happened over the last um, 30 years or so. For the last uh, 100 years, it's been normal to be a Christian in America. But as the culture has gotten more secular, as the culture gets more secular, it becomes more normal for people to admit they're really not that serious about their faith. You see, 40 years ago, if you were to ask almost anybody, are they a religious person, they would say yes. Right? They would say yes because that's what you say. Even if they haven't been to church in five years, if you ask them if they're religious, they'll say, oh, yeah, absolutely. But what's happened as we become a post-Christian nation is it becomes far more normal for people to say no. Or it becomes far more normal for people to be willingly honest and say, my religious preference is none. And so it's not as if people are really genuinely walking away from the faith. What's happening is, is the middle sector, the group of people who have always kind of been on the fringe, have left the fringe of Christianity and have now gone to the fringe of, of none. And it's, and it's sounded alarm bells for a lot of people, but, but a lot of us have said, you know, this is normal, this is what we've expected. But the problem isn't that the, that group has left. The problem is that that group is then attracting people that we didn't expect it to attract. And so as the rise of the nuns took place, they started taking people with them. And so that group began to grow, and this is why people are now referring to this next generation as what could be the lost generation. One of the most interesting indicators of this is happening in the military. Every, every soldier that is, enters the military is issued a dog tag, and one of the, you know, the dog tag has their number and identification and all those kinds of things on it, but one of the other things on their dog tag is their religious preference. And somewhere in the neighborhood of the last 150 years, the most popular religious preference has been Baptist slash Christian but in the last five years, it's shifted. And now the most popular religious preference is none. And the reason that's most important is because who is it that's enlisting in the military? It's 18 to 23-year-olds. And so what this tells you is that it's not older people, but it's the next generation coming up that is the rise of the nuns. And so when people talk about it being a lost generation, the temptation is to say, oh, maybe. But it's a very serious and very real problem that could very likely rear its ugly head unless we, as a church, are willing to say it won't be happening because of I'm going to say this one more time just to let it sink into you that none is currently the most popular religious designation among 18 to 23-year-olds. None. But I will tell you this. That this is not the first time this has happened. 
It's not as if, that you know, say you, you believe that people came 6,000 years ago and this was like the peak of creation and, and ever since then it's all been downhill and here we are at the very end of it and God's about to be done with us. It's like a lot different than that, okay? This isn't like God's watching from down going, oh, this is it, this is the last straw. This has happened before. In fact, it happened just a few generations after the earth was created. It happened a few more generations after that. It's kind of this cycle that keeps continuing. But our goal isn't to say, well, we're part of the cycle. Our goal is to stop the cycle. And it happens in the book of Judges. If you want to open your Bible and turn there, it's not that hard to find. It's towards the front of your Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. It's the seventh book in there. It's in Judges chapter 2. And it's the story that happens when, when God's people, the Israelites, kind of settle down. Because here's what happens to the Israelites. The Israelites have a really hard go of it for about 500 years. They end up in Egypt because they ran out of food in their home. And they end up in Egypt, and the Egyptians decide, mm, let's take them as slaves. So they take them as slaves, and then they end up as slaves, and they do slave things. They have to build things, and they're whipped, and they're, and they're beaten, and they're brutalized. And it's misery, right? I mean, you can imagine what it would be like to be a slave. And so they're in slavery for 400 years, and they're just absolutely miserable. Well, then God sends Moses, and Moses performs the ten plagues, and they see these signs from God that it's clear that God is there, right? And God sends Moses, and they free them from their slavery, and God, and God frees them, and they, and they all kind of, they walk out, and they see how God's working, and they're walking through the desert, and God's leading them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Every morning they wake up, and there's enough food on the ground, exactly enough food for the million of them to eat, not none anymore, not any less. Like, there's enough food for them to eat, then they, they kind of start to lose their faith a little bit, and they, God kind of makes them wander in the desert for 40 years. But every time something difficult happens, God shows up, right? This is, this is the way it goes, but God keeps promising them one thing, and he keeps promising them, if you follow me, we'll get you to the land of milk and honey. And he keeps promising them that if you would just follow me to the land of milk and honey, everything will be okay. But in the journey to get there, life is hard. And it's easy to remember God when life is hard, isn't it? When you get laid off, when your marriage is in trouble, when life is difficult, it's easy to remember God. And so when God's right in front of their face, when he's working in difficult ways, when he's answering